At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We welcome you to episode number 14 of the Marine Lair podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, Mike Lefko of Seattle Sports and SeattleSports.com joins the podcast. Mike is the afternoon drive producer for Wyman and Bob. Also hear him on the Mariners radio network and see his written work covering the Mariners and Seahawks at SeattleSports.com. He was at Mariners Media Day earlier this week. We'll talk to him about all the happenings uh, at the Mariners Media Gathering uh, before they head down to spring training. We have our shortstop preview for the 2023 season. It's essentially just J.P. Crawford, so a lot of J.P. Crawford talk looking at the shortstop spot for the Mariners this upcoming season. We'll close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you in to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast here on recording for the first time on a Sunday, Sunday, February 5th. Lyle, how are we doing? Doing pretty good. You know why? Because the biggest news in baseball this week is the Mariners get an extra year of Dylan Moore. Break down how your evening went when you saw that, saw that extension. There was a fist pump involved. When I get the Jeff Passan tweet, alerting us about Dylan Moore. First off, world made. And second of all, when you find out he's going to be in Seattle for multiple seasons because the extension bought him one extra year, yeah, I'm hyped. You know I'm a huge Dylan Moore fan. Does that make your Mount Rushmore of passing notifications over the last three years? The last time we talked about Dylan Moore in an intro, you asked if him being the most searched player in the state of Hawaii made my Mount Rushmore. Can Jeff Passan tweeting about him either dethrone that or put it aside the Hawaii Dylan Moore search? I'm going to say yes. Wow. Wow. It is That's a dream. Guy. And it's a it's a good contract for the Mariners. Uh, about A little bit under $3 million a year for a guy who's worth uh, a little over two wins above replacement as a backup utility man. He's extremely valuable to the Mariners, corner outfielder, infielder as well. I'm happy to see they've wrapped up Dylan Moore. We didn't talk about Dylan Moore at all with Mike Lefko, uh, who we were talking to just before recording this intro. But we did talk about a whole bunch of other things regarding Mariners Media Day, all the guys participating in the WBC, the left field conundrum, Evan White. Yeah, we managed to talk more about Evan White with Mike Lefko. Even threw in Casey Sadler as well. It was good to, to have some perspective from a guy who gets to actually talk to these players 
uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, 710 being the flagship station of the Mariners. They get access to Mariners players um, a little bit more frequently than other outlets do. So it, it was good, really good to get his perspective on on all these things that have sort of come out over this last week. Absolutely. And he's shared some stories about some interviews that he's done so far in his time in Seattle. And I think he gave us some good perspective on where the Mariners are kind of looking toward for 2023, just between, again, there's going to be a lot of storylines heading into spring training. And I think Mike, Mike helped us a lot cover a good basis of them. There, there it is. There's going to be a lot of levels, especially when, we'll, we'll hear it in the interview. But the thing that really stuck out to me when he's saying, hey, how many of these guys are we going to see step up once a lot of these regulars go off and play in the WBC like an Evan White, Cade Marlowe? Could Cade Marlowe make a huge impression? We didn't that Cade Marlowe's name never came up. So that's why I'm going to bring it up now of guys who could really step in and play well during the spring while all those other guys are gone. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to our interview with Mike Lefko. We welcome Mike Lefko onto the Marine Layer podcast. Mike is the afternoon drive producer of Wyman and Bob at Seattle Sports 710 in Seattle. He, you can occasionally hear him on the Mariners radio network in the pregame and the postgame. And you can also find Mike's work, work. He writes occasionally on seattlesports.com covering the Mariners, Seahawks, and whatever else you, you guys decide to talk about that day. Mike, we uh, appreciate you coming on. You were able to, to be at Mariners Media Day earlier this week, so it's good to get some inside per- perspective and, uh, and have you on here today. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I'll put aside the fact that you made a radio guy come on video, so I apologize. See, it's the same thing for both of us, Mike, because me and you both work in radio, but here we are on a video podcast a video putting our podcast. faces in front of it. It's... It's strange. Like you at least put a collared shirt on. I'm sitting here wearing a hoodie, a hoodie, and and I think I'm still in my pajamas from what we're what we're <laughs> what you no one could ever tell on radio. But you know we can't hide anything here. Well, I've got a better background than I do. I was uh, not the best at dressing up the background behind me. Just wanted something a little plain, not too much light flooding in. See, all these things have to go into mind. But uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll work our way through it. We'll get to some good knowledge outside of that. Yeah, yeah, I think so, to too. So, Go ahead, Lyle. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, you got to try to build your own little studio with uh, posters and old fat heads and stuff like that. Try to make it nice the best you can, right? It's a sharp look. Yeah, it looks good. Thanks. Before we get into a lot of the Mariners stuff, Mike, um, I, I don't know how many of our listeners are, are familiar with you. You are the producer of the Afternoon Drive show, Wyman and Bob, but you've had a couple other stops along the way. You've been in, in the San Antonio, Austin area where you spent time as a, as a TV reporter as well. You did some play-by-play at the University of South Florida, a graduate of Syracuse University. So before we get into into the Mariners and, and up here in the current day in Seattle, Maybe shed a little background for our listeners on how you got to where you are and maybe your love of baseball as well and how you've gotten here. Well, to right here, I think it's uh, just the broadcasting grind. You guys, I think, can understand that. And I know you guys are going through it right now. Um, a little bit older, so I made some more stops uh, along the way. But you're just kind of working, carving out a path and trying to find a foothold in this crazy uh, sports broadcasting and play-by-play industry that we all like to do and so many others do. So out of college, it was uh, right down to IMG in Winston-Salem to work with some college athletic departments and uh, did a summer minor league baseball there. So got to work with uh, the Winston-Salem Dash, got some good draft picks for the White Sox that came through there. 
And then, uh, yeah, women's basketball and college baseball at USF, where USF played against Cal Raleigh a couple of times when they were uh, playing Florida State in some midweek games. So we saw a lot of great players who are now MLB players, most notably some Florida Gators teams who they churned them out there in the uh, early 2013, 2014, 2015 years. Uh, those are some loaded Gators teams. It's cool to see some of the, those guys from college baseball make their way through the minors and, and now into the majors. So I think maybe you guys have dealt with this, maybe not yet. But, you know, when you work in this industry, it's a little strange to tell people, but you are a fan still. But first and foremost, you know, you're a fan of players who have come across your path or you root for storylines to succeed rather than just a diehard for a team. So what's cool for me now working around baseball and the Mariners is to see guys like this who I might have seen and broadcasted in college or in the low levels of the minors now have success here at the major league level. What was your favorite storyline then opposed to seeing Cal Raleigh early? Uh, at USF or this year for the Mariners? No, uh, I'll we'll say USF because following we'll do the following storyline aspect. Okay, so this might not be popular for Mariners fans to hear because this guy is a pitcher for the Angels now, but uh, a burgeoning pitcher when I was there went by the name of Jimmy Herget. He was a terrific starter, and uh, he really had a grind and work his way through the minors and then found a, a role in a bullpen. So getting to see him lock on with the Angels and be a solid guy in their bullpen, that's so cool because USF, they're a good baseball program, but they are not churning out major league players every year, like a Florida state or a Florida in that state, Miami as well. I mean, that state is loaded with baseball talent, but to see a guy like Jimmy Herget, who really helped boost USF through 2014 and 2015 now make it and be a solid MLB pro. That's a really cool thing to see. uh, Even if he is in the Mariners division. I'm thinking off the top of my head, you were before McClanahan was there, right? Uh, I actually got him when he was a freshman. He sat right behind me on the bus. So freshman, (laughs) And uh, his sophomore year, and I think he has progressed much further than that now. But, uh, yeah, he I didn't get to know him as much because as a freshman, you know, those guys are kind of in their shell or they keep to themselves a little bit. So got to know Hergit uh, a little bit more because he was there for three years when I was, and Shane was just two years. But, yeah, he was there, and he was fantastic. Certainly had a, a sign or an indication that he could be some, become something special, but – don't know if anyone would have predicted the you know, hundred plus dominant AL pitcher that he's become for the Rays. What was he throwing when you were there? He was, um, I mean, he was throwing close to that, like mid to high nineties. But again, it's such a it's such a precarious balance because these guys who know they have a professional future, they want to build their arms up. So there's a lot of development that goes to it as well. I mean, this is a freshman in college who is getting used to a collegiate strength training and conditioning program. And there's so much emphasis in off-season training now. And I know that baseball players have found all sorts of ways to build up their their bodies, build up their pitching arms, and do all these things. And I think as a freshman and sophomore, you're still kind of learning that. So you get the benefit of a college program. And then now in the pros like he has, I'm sure he has only grown leaps and bounds from what I was seeing as a first-year college pitcher. So as somebody who grew up pretty far away from the Pacific Northwest, from afar, how much did you really know about the Mariners before you got here? Ooh, honestly, outside of uh, the rain in the 90s and then that terrific year in 2001, like after the early 2000s, not much. I mean, they were just a a team that kind of fell off the radar, but they were the team of everyone's childhood. And I think a big reason why all of us at a certain age 
are baseball fans is because of Ken Griffey. And everyone tells that story. And then you get latched on with the, the player, the personality and the team. And then you follow the Mariners a little bit because they are in the spotlight and they're such a prominent presence. But then I should do a double take and think, okay, well, that was uh, you know close to 30 years ago now when Ken Griffey was in his heyday. And then towards the end of it and the end of this uh, torrid run for the Mariners in the late 90s and early 2000s. So after that, yeah, there wasn't much. And I really had to dive back into the, the history and understanding you know, the, the frustration behind the droughts, all the, the, the good, the bad, and really the down, down years that this franchise went through. So certainly a, a new appreciation after being here now. This will be my third season covering the Mariners. So with that, you said it's your third season covering the Mariners. You've done a bunch of different stuff. Do you have a favorite either interview or moment that you've done, so, that you've had so far? <laughs> this is a... In hindsight, it didn't end up being the, you know, he wasn't the best personality on the team and it didn't work out with Jesse Winker, but I got to fill in for Shannon Dreyer on, um, on the, on our, on the home opener on the broadcast when the Mariners crushed the Astros in their first game of the, this past season, they didn't get a start at home because uh, the lockout pushed back the original start. So they had come back and there was all that excitement, um, little bit of apprehension though, after the, the opening series against the twins and the White Sox, but when they go out there on that Friday night and just crush the Astros and Jesse Winkard had a decent game and he's coming off the, the field and you need to grab an interview. And this is live on the radio broadcast. And, you know, I ask him what the atmosphere is like, what he was taking it all in. And well, he drops an expletive right on a live radio broadcast. So <laughs> that's a moment you won't forget. Uh, it kind of just, it showed at the time, I think his appreciation for the scene and the atmosphere and, and yeah, I, I look back on it now and the memory itself is a little soured because Winker, the player and the person didn't work out here. But in that moment, at the very start of the season, it was such a, wow, this could really be something special because the crowd was nuts. I mean, that place, the the home opener and then the night they clinched those two games and of course the playoff game, but yeah, that didn't end as well uh, as the, the home opener and then the, the clincher did. But those three moments, I think those three games really summed up the excitement and the potential of what this team and this core can be. And so to be able to be on the field and get that interview in the moment, that really was a highlight for me of this season. I want to ask you about the the clincher, but let's. I want to go back to Jesse Winker first, because you talked a little bit about his personality there, and his personality was such a big story when he came mm-hmm. here early, and he's in all these interviews, and people are like, wow, I mean, he's very light, he's very, he's funny, he seems like a, a, a guy who's easy to get along with, and he seems like a guy that would really make a clubhouse a lot better. But I'm curious, as we go through this season, it seemed like that had almost the opposite effect. It was it was just, it was really strange. And I, and I would say more uh, when we're talking about storylines here, uh, a storyline of something just not working out and something you think is a good thing off the bat, and you're like, well, this dude, is he's happy, he's over the world to be here. And it didn't work at all. And it was, it was, it was really strange. Yeah, it it was. And maybe it's a a reason why fans and a lot of people have some apprehension about the off season acquisitions this year, because if you go into last year and the key needs they address, well, you get an all-star left fielder, you get an all-star second baseman. And that was going to be great. That was, those were going to be the two guys that really helped push this team to where they were and where they ended up being. We didn't know, Cal Raleigh would be such a key part of this. We had no idea what Julio would be. And we certainly didn't know that others would would make that leap. So 
when Jesse Winker and Adam Frazier don't work out, I understand from one perspective, the fans who then look at Teoscar Hernandez and look at Colton Wong and say, well, look, they just tried to upgrade these positions last time. It didn't work. But with Winker, it just seemed to be a personality thing that is different. And what I've observed from how players and how fans and, and how teammates now talk about Colton Wong and Teoscar Hernandez. With Winker, those struggles were not something he was used to. So it sounded like he kind of retreated and turned a little bit inward. And from what I've heard and from what, well, okay. So one thing kind of jumped out and uh, Bob Selton actually, who hosts our show, talks about this a lot, that when we were down there after the clincher, after everyone's just jubilant and celebrating and, and that clubhouse is just a chaotic scene of, of everyone just celebrating one of the biggest moments in Mariners history. And Jesse Winker is removed from it. He was standing kind of outside of the main scrum. He wasn't really interacting with any of the players, with anyone else around. And actually, Bob went up there, credit to him. We went over to Jesse and asked him. He's like, hey, you know, everything all right? Like, I see you're back here. And Winker said, like, yeah, I'm just, I'm taking it all in. But that, in hindsight, seemed to be a big key about him just not meshing personality-wise with the rest of this Mariners team. And you know baseball, it's so important to have a good clubhouse dynamic. I mean, that's what carried the Mariners through that slump in the, in the dog days, in the early stretch of the, the June and before they really made their run, before the All-Star break, when they were 10 games under 500. I think it was the personality of those guys who became core clubhouse men in that locker room. Jesse Winker wasn't really a part of that. And so that kind of didn't mesh with the dynamic of the Mariners. And his production obviously wasn't what anyone expected when he came over here. Maybe his teammates, certainly the front office. I assume Scott Service was perhaps a little disappointed. He's never going to say that. Neither would Jerry Depoto or Justin Hollander. But when the production doesn't match up, and then when a guy who maybe he's just uh, wired a little bit differently also isn't fitting in well, it just kind of led to a, a series of events that now he's not on the team anymore. Well, I was going to say that that all makes a lot of sense when you kind of spell it out like that. And it's obviously disappointing for the team, for the fans to see a guy that had so much expectation come into Seattle and then not work out. But if it's clubhouse chemistry, people are worried about with the new acquisitions. The good news is hey, Oscar Hernandez has been seen all over social media over the last couple of weeks working out with Julio Rodriguez. So it seems like he hasn't taken much time to get acclimated to some of his new teammates. And that's why I think, and I would tell these fans that are saying, well, and okay. So I'd also caution this by saying we, interact with maybe the angrier of the bunch being on talk radio. You're going to get a a certain subsection of fan that gets a little more frustrated and a little bit vocal in their frustrations, which is okay. I mean, never going to tell anyone how to be a fan. Fans are passionate. They can express their opinions however they want. But yeah, this is not the same as a Winker, even an Adam Frazier. Colton Wong, by all accounts, great guy. He's been on our radio station a couple of times now. Other teammates now have talked uh, about his work ethic and his personality. And every stop he's been, he has fit in well. So Colton Wong certainly seems like he'll be a good fit. And yeah, Lyle, you mentioned it, Teoscar Hernandez has been working out with Julio. I mean, he was at Mariners Media Day. He was one of the nicest interviews around, uh, did a number of interviews there, spoke to the assembled media. So in terms of clubhouse fit, these guys are different. And we obviously don't know what their production is going to be. Could Teoscar Hernandez regress a little bit in an unfriendly hitter's park? Sure. But you don't have to worry about the personality side, at least from these two. Yeah, that that's, that's pretty much how we think about it, too. And I heard, 
uh, I was listening to to Sox podcast on on his Friday show, and he was he was really impressive. You know, Teoscar's the kind of guy. It, he's not the biggest guy in the room, but he is. It, it, he's like a unit. He looks like just a baseball player. I mean, that's just like the old person talk coming out of me. But he just like he has that that look of a baseball player. But I, I'm glad he was. I'm glad we've heard all these raving reports of him so far, um, and all the positives. And it sounds like he is. Uh, he's going to contribute a lot in spring training. And for what I wrote down, he will be indeed playing for the Dominican Republic in the World Baseball Classic. But uh, was there anything he said there up there at the podium that was uh, that that was notable uh, from from media day when he was there? I don't think he was going to come in and make any revelatory or earth shattering remarks. I mean, he's a new guy. He's kind of feeling it out, but he just kind of expressed how excited he was to, to be here. I mean, he said dating back to his days with Houston, how many times he's actually liked playing in this park. So he has, uh, I guess, admired the Mariners from afar. And one thing that was kind of funny that stuck out, I guess the Blue Jays, when they drew the Mariners in the first round of the playoffs, guys were excited. They wanted to play them. There was some maybe desire to, uh, avenge the the sweep that they had had here in Seattle, but Teoscar was one who specifically said he's like, nah, I didn't, I didn't want to play those guys. Like I knew how good they were, so he certainly knew how good the Mariners could be, and we saw that in the playoffs with that sweep of the Blue Jays and with the close series against the Astros. So I think him just kind of fitting in and settling into a team that from the outside looks very appealing to a lot of players right now. Diving a little further into Mariners media day this past week, what? The biggest story to me was Jerry Depoto informing everybody that Luis Castillo is not going to pitch in the World mm-hmm. Baseball Classic because we had previously all heard that he was. Were you guys surprised at all to hear the news? Um, no, I I don't think you truly know what happens behind the scenes. Maybe how much, not pressure, but how much the Mariners maybe express their concerns, how much Luis Castillo then had to go think it over. But it sounds like both are in aligned in realizing Look, the goal here and the plan is the Mariners made a significant long-term investment with Luis Castillo. And Luis Castillo was brought here to win games, to take this team to World Series. I'm sure if it's laid out like that, even with all the pride for country and what this means to baseball on the world stage, the goal for every baseball player is to win a World Series. So Luis Castillo, who had a languish in Cincinnati, now coming here as the centerpiece, as the focal point of what this really good rotation wants to do, and it's going to be a Mariners team that will be led by their rotation again. I think after you sit down and you break it down like that, he probably understood that, yeah, this is this is more important. And one thing I don't think – I don't think Jerry said it there at media day. He did say it the next day on with uh, Brock and Salk. He talked about kind of the, specific of, the specifics of Castillo's offseason regimen and that he ramps up at a certain stage. And it's a little bit later than a lot of guys. So to go through his throwing program, to then be ready – to pitch in early March, that was going to require a lot earlier ramp-up time. And I think when they broke it down like that, Castillo's camp, and then the Mariners realized, all right, the most prudent thing to do is not pitch there. We can build you up back at your pace in spring training in low-leverage situations at a stage where, I don't know what it involves, you know, innings limits or how much you start out with, but it's a more natural ramp-up than he would have had to go through had he been pitching in a World Baseball Classic. There's a couple other storylines to come out of the World Baseball Classic that we'll touch on here in a second. But, Mike, are you a big fan of the of the World Baseball Classic? I personally love it. I think it should get a much bigger stage than it does. I think it doesn't really do it a great service that it's just thrown in the middle of spring training, and it's almost an afterthought of a lot of 
a lot of Major League Baseball fans, but the concept of it is phenomenal and I think should be, you know, put up a little bit more, even though it's not. Yeah, I think it's because of what you said, that the timing of it. There's no good time to have it, right? Like you can't have it in the middle of the season or else you'd have to go through what the NHL was doing when they did that massive break when they let their players go play in the Olympics. And that's not practical for baseball because you are on a, a clock here. You can't have the season go into December. So there's really no good way to schedule it. And then it's also, it's been a while since they've had one. Then everyone kind of forgets about, all right, well, we got to remember this thing that is so infrequent now because the, the pandemic stymied the, the natural progression of it. And I think it also hurts that the Dominican Republic's way too good. So comparatively speaking, from this perspective here in the U.S., when the U.S. is not going to field the best team or maybe even the you know, second or third best team, it's tough to really lock on like other countries do. But it is a very cool concept, and it makes you realize how special this game is, how well-represented baseball is on the world stage, and how many countries make significant contributions to well, the Mariners and to all of baseball. The full think- rundown for Mariners in the World Baseball Classic, Julio Teoscar and Diego Castillo will be playing for the Dominican Republic. I'm waiting for Julio to hit a ball about 500 feet while playing for that team, and he's probably just going to lose it. Eugenio Suarez is going to play for Venezuela. Matt Brash, with an agreement with the club, part of the agreement for him pitching for Team Canada is to be a reliever, so he's planning on coming into camp as a reliever. Uh, Matt Festa, I believe, is pitching for Italy, and then Harry Ford is going to play for Great Britain as well. I'm very excited for that to see how Harry handles some some higher level pitching than he faces uh that he'll probably face in high a this year uh i'm I'm not any of those really stick out to you mike as something you're really gonna watch honestly probably depends on the timing when the games are you know around our schedules but harry ford is a guy because he's such a recent high draft pick and because right now at least uh position wise at least in the lineup the mariners don't have a lot of young bats that are coming up quickly they have a lot of pitching depth. They have a, a ton of young players that they have since moved up. You know, Jared Kelnick has come up recently. Julio obviously has come up. So position-wise, their young movement is already in the majors or their ways away. So Harry Ford might be the closest thing to a name that people can latch on to to say, all right, well, here's the second wave. Because, you know, the unfortunate downside of the Luis Castillo trade, and it's not a downside, it's just the reality, is you got rid of your best position player prospects. So now there's no one that Mariners fans can latch on to and say, oh, yeah, that's a guy who isn't a pitcher that I think could be an impact bat soon. Harry Ford might be the closest thing because he was that early round pick a couple of years ago. Do you feel like Matt Brash has had some realization that I'm borderline elite at the back end of the bullpen? And I ask that because there was reports last year when they first moved him that he didn't really love the idea. He wanted to be a starter. There were reports this offseason they were going to stretch him out as a starter. But between agreeing to pitch for Team Canada as a reliever and forego his opportunity to be a starter, do you think a part of that has to do with, yeah, I realized my role with this team was so invaluable at the back end of the bullpen? Yeah, and uh, Jerry DePoto actually told us that when he was interviewed by um, Dave and Bob, and then we played that on our show kind of after media day, that Matt Brash, in looking through the, the crowded rotation, and he was going to have to face something similar that he did before the start of 2022, where it came down to, to George Kirby and him for that spot, and Matt Brash won that spot, made the start, made a couple of starts, and then it just didn't work out. Goes down to the bullpen, where all of a sudden 
you don't necessarily need the same tools as a starting pitcher. I mean, you can work on that elite slider and that fastball, and, and that's all you need. Maybe develop a secondary pitcher there. So with what Matt Brash developed into, especially late in the season when the Mariners absolutely needed him to be a clutch reliever, once that kind of got laid out there, certainly I think, Lyle, yeah, he understood, all right, I can play a valuable role. And while it's not, I don't want to say glory, but while it's not the, you know, the prestige and the ultimately maybe more money you can command as a starting pitcher, there's something to be said, we all know this, right, for just a lockdown reliever that can just span a career and be that guy for years and years and years. So if Matt Brash can do that for the Mariners for a long time, that's going to be so valuable to, to what this team could do as a contender. And it seems like, again, going back to the clubhouse chemistry thing, these are all good guys. There's not any obstinate resistance being put up by any of these players, it seems like, when they get told something by Scott or by Justin or Jerry. So after that sit-down with Matt Brash, who is still very young, and you know they tell him, look, look at all the starting pitchers we have right now. The Mariners still don't know what they're going to do with all their current starting pitchers. You have six of them without including Matt Brash as a possible option, you lay it out there like that, hey, you can be a solid guaranteed reliever for us, or you might not make it in the rotation. I think the answer became pretty obvious for him. And just because Matt Brash is in the bullpen doesn't mean he has to stop starting. If they ever need him in an absolute Mm -hmm. emergency, they could still put him in the rotation, no problem. It would be less likely because they have all those other options you mentioned. I mean, Dollard, Hancock, two guys that, in a, 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 a thinner rotation could see the majors this year, Bryce Miller as well. But none of those guys, I don't even think are going to see the rotation this year because you already, as you mentioned, health forbidding already have the guys that line up in that, uh, in that rotation as well. So I, I'm happy Matt Brash chose that. I think it's a better role for him. I think it's more important to the Mariners too, because if you look at it right now, He's their second best reliever, returning reliever, at least, in that bullpen. You have Munoz, but Munoz isn't even completely healthy. He just got up a walking boot a couple weeks ago. So you look at the the health aspect of that bullpen. It is Brash, who is A, has the best stuff right now, and is the healthiest going into spring training. Uh, so that I think that's maybe the most important aspect of that. Yeah, I think people kind of forget that the Mariners really did value Eric Swanson, and that was a a tough piece to to give up. So you lose a stable option there, and and you have a couple of guys who, as you mentioned, um, Andres Munoz sounds like he'll be fine, but outside of Andres Munoz, you had maybe a little bit more of an up-and-down year for Paul Seawald. You don't have – you might have Casey Sadler. You don't know because he missed all of 2022. He's now back on a a non-roster invite to – spring training. So he could be an option, but when you get past Munoz and what you expect to be a very stable Paul Seawald, yeah, Matt Brash is probably a a key guy there. And we know how much depth matters when it comes to the course of a long season to a bullpen, to an 18 inning playoff game where you have to trot some relievers out there. So Matt Brash is going to be a key role in this team. But yeah, as you guys were saying, I mean, you hope he doesn't have to become a starting pitcher because that means something's gone wrong injury-wise. And the Mariners did so well at keeping those arms healthy. And that's a big reason why they got to where they did in 2022. I'm actually looking forward to seeing Casey Sadler again this year. I think he, I he has he a chance come back. to He was good so role. good in 2021. People forget he how was. good he I'm, was. He was amazing. And I think we could probably tell pretty quickly into spring training if he's, you know, he's still got it. He missed all last year with, I think it was a shoulder surgery. Mm-hmm. So he comes back. I mean, he comes into spring training and he, you know, he's dotting up a few 93s and 94s and he's still got the the nice breaking balls as well. I don't see why not because 
him and Swanson were very similar pitchers in the way they pitched. I mean, it was it was it was a lot of ground balls. It was it was soft contact, and it was just a right mix of pitches. Not over an overly overpowering guy, but the but the right mix, and and it could help really sort of seamlessly phase Swanson out and put Casey back in. Yeah, there's just there's so much depth in this bullpen, and I think now the Mariners. Pitching coaches and this front office and Scott have built up hopefully a level of trust and respect by what they can do with these bullpens. Even though they are fickle from year to year, you go, you go across baseball and you can't rely on a good bullpen one year carrying over to the next. But it was kind of a, a rotating door from 2021 to 2022. And with the bullpen being so good in 2021, new names did the same thing in 2022. There was no Andres Munoz or Matt Brash in 2021. Yet here they were becoming the key factors in 2022. So that gives you the trust that whoever comes up and develops and maintains that bullpen spot, whether it's Casey Sadler again or someone else to help out Seawald, Munoz, and Brash, is going to be someone who acclimates quickly to how the Mariners like to pitch. I think there were a couple other interesting storylines from Media Day. One of them being Jerry DePoto said Evan White is as healthy as he's ever been. This is a guy who hasn't been on the field in nearly two years, at least a big league field. And we know the struggles he's had offensively early in his career. But is there a shot that he could make the opening day roster out of spring training if he's healthy and he's really spraying the ball during games? Opening day, I don't think so. It just feels like where's the position for him? And that's the issue. Because as you said, Lyle, I mean, the bat has always been behind. The defense was truly elite when when he was up here before, but unintentionally his absence led to Ty France turning into a very capable first baseman. And now with the Mariners wanting to platoon in a number of positions, it just doesn't feel like there's room to carry Evan White. Ah, you know, maybe you could rotate him in a couple of days to give Ty France a break, but you know, you already have Dylan Moore on the roster hanging around. You already have uh, a couple of other guys who are going to be a big impact that don't have everyday positions. So with that positional flexibility, and the fact that we know the Mariners don't like to have that day in and day out DH. I don't want to say never because, yeah, he could come in and the bat looks great. And if he is as healthy as, as Jerry is talking about, which would be incredible, this is a guy that they committed long term to a few years ago. So he is important. But you look at just the uncertainty still about how he would fit in onto this roster. And I think they probably want to see a couple more live game reps before you could say, yeah, Evan White's going to be here. There doesn't doesn't feel like there's an urgency to get him on the opening day roster because of what Ty France can do. Now, that's not to say that after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, if you need someone to help spell Ty France or, you know, I don't even want to bring it up, but what happened last year where Ty France got injured and he had to miss time at first base, you don't have that Carlos Santana anymore. So Evan White could still play a pretty, pretty big role on this Mariners team either this year or, or maybe next year, but opening day at least to me, it feels like they're pretty settled at this point, position-wise. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of position battles. You have your platoons in left field and at second base and wherever else they, well, seems to be about it. But because Tom Murphy's also back and should be a key part of this team, I think he's more of a guy that he could be in that day-in, day-out DH spot along with Dylan Moore or some of these other guys if they, uh, they need to get bats in there. I think there's a pretty good chance. It, it, it doesn't even have to be at first base when I, from what I'm thinking. I'm thinking if A.J. Pollock gets hurt. You have Sam Haggerty on the bench, a very mm. good defensive outfielder, and a very good right-handed hitter, so that platoon still works with Jared out and left. 
but then you could you have the potential to add another guy like Evan White to your bench who could play the corner outfield spots if you have to move Sam Haggerty to the infield at some point and spell uh, either an injury or a day off for, for a Dylan Moore, a Colton Wong, a, a Eugenio Suarez, or, or any of those guys. So I, I, I think we'll get more of what they projected from Evan when they drafted him, and they said, well, he's a supreme athlete. We could stick him in the outfield if we want. As good as his defense at first base is, I think we wouldn't lose too much putting him in the outfield. Now, I'm not necessarily sure that's the right thing for him because if it's the only value you get out of Evan White is his defense at first base, then sticking him in the outfield kind of is a wash. But I, w- I would say, Mike, because you guys are going to get to go down to spring training here uh, sometime in the next month, am I right? Um, We're going at the very end. So I think we'll have a pretty good picture of what the roster is and those guys that uh, go to the World Baseball Classic will be back then as well. I think we're going to be there the very last week. Literally, they'll leave and uh, break camp and come back to Seattle, uh, I think, the weekend after we leave. So we're there the the week of the 20th through the 24th. So by then, um, I can check back in and tell you a pretty good impression of what the opening day roster will look like. I'm guessing when you're down there, though, A, Evan White will still be with that group because I believe they keep all the the 40-man guys and the AAA guys there till right at the very end, and then they'll come back up to Seattle together usually. I'm guessing Evan White's going to be there. He's going to be playing, and I think he's going to be playing in the outfield. And what could help is he's going to get a lot of time while these guys are gone. That is the big impact of the World Baseball Classic. Not on the guys, I think, that are leaving to go play with their teams, on guys like that 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 need reps. Uh, On a guy like Jared Kelnick, who – Jerry did mention because he, we do have the benefit of he's on our station every week. A couple of weeks ago, he did say Jared's going to benefit from getting a ton of reps with other guys gone. I mean, he will be in the lineup pretty much every day. It sounds like getting uh, a look at the plate, getting all these at bats to try to see if the offseason work has helped. So something like that for Kelnick, for Evan White, where the bat is still the biggest question mark. Yeah, could play a big impact in determining what happens with these guys. And there is a there's a lot banking on Jared Kelnick, but to get something out of Evan White could only be considered a bonus. It could certainly help take that step where everyone's wondering, how do you accomplish that? What's the step to the popular word thrown out there is, well, how do you catch the Astros? And that's a, that's a very loaded question. But a combination of factors, maybe Evan White providing a massive contribution that could be one one way. We've talked a lot about Jared on this podcast. Well, I'll let you get in here in a second, but I wanted to just work this in. Jerry said, uh, Jerry and Justin Hollander at Media Day, quote, I wonder if they explain this to you, Mike. Uh, they quote, they are particularly excited by recent biometric evaluations of Kelnick's mechanicism. Uh, did they explain what that means? I think that's just a, a good baseball way of dressing up, saying his you know off-season work, what he has studied, what he is probably, and they didn't get into detail about what it was, but what he has evaluated maybe in his swing, in his at-bats, in his approach to the plate. I also don't think, and they have said this a lot as well, it isn't anything physical with Jared Kelnick. It's mostly mental. It's in his head. It's how tough he takes perceived failure because baseball is a game of failure. So if he does go through a slump and, and that lingers and the frustration and the the mindset that kind of stays with him, that, and maybe that can get lumped into biometrics and all this, that's the key for Jared Kelnick because he has all the tools. You know, we've seen it. There's a reason why he has been such a hype prospect from the time he was drafted and why the Mariners made the centerpiece of that trade, Jared Kelnick, when he came over from the Mets. But mentally, that's such a struggle because baseball is a frustrating game. 
So maybe it's something there because Jerry has also mentioned a lot that Kelnick is 23. You know, he's, he's so young. He's a guy that if he was coming out of college, he might have just been drafted, right? He would have been maybe drafted at age 21 or 22. And this is perhaps his first full season in baseball. But because he has been doing it since high school, there's this intense scrutiny and focus on him. And the timeline has been sped up so much further than perhaps a prospect like Kelnick is ready. You know, it's not linear. Uh, I keep saying this is what, you know, DePoto and Hollander have said, but because they do, they say it a lot and they say it on our airwaves a lot, that it's not always linear for guys. Kelnick showed great signs of progress at times throughout the season, the this past season. The, the final month, I mean, the playoffs weren't great, but the final month, he was a pretty valuable contributor. So if that can get pushed together in a continual string of at-bats and then maybe a month or a quick start that leads to that confidence, that's the key for Kelnick. And yeah, we can go back to the age thing, even though people don't want to hear it because it feels like he's been part of this team for a long time. But he's young, and he still has time to figure it out. People forget he really only had one minor league season because he tore it up in low A, yeah. high A, double A in 2019. 2020 was lost. He had six games in affiliated minor league ball in 2021 before he was called up. And that was kind of it. So he got some time back in AAA the last two years, and maybe that started to make up for some lost time for him. And if it has, that'd be great because we saw some of those adjustments that he made in September last year, which where, like you said, he was a contributing piece of the offense. Along with, I think he improved his defense a lot last year as well. I mean, 2021, he wasn't a great defender. Last year, he really was when he was up in the majors. So I think there have been marginal improvements over time. But 2023, it feels like, could be the make or break year for him. And that's, wow, that's a great point too. I think I have kind of harped on at times with young prospects and with Kelnick specifically that the impact of 2020 and that lost season was so critical in lost development for these young players. And when you have a timeline and you're projecting something years in advance and when the Mariners bring Jared Kelnick in, hey, in their mind, we have a great player development staff. We have this process for him that this year he'll do this. And then in his first key full season here, he'll get to do this. Well, and that's lost. And in 2020, all of a sudden you don't get any work. You don't get any live reps. And Kelnick expressed that frustration. I think in 2021, he told Shannon Dreyer, who's part of our station and a key member of that Mariners broadcast crew who you hear uh, every night on the pre and post game. He said, it's so frustrating to just be down there going through repetitive drill work. You don't get game experience. And for a young developing prospect, it's tough to overstate how detrimental that can be for lost development. So Kelnick had to deal with that. Maybe it stalled something key that hadn't been clicked yet or hadn't been uncovered that he was struggling with. And it has taken this long to build up to it. But that lost season, it pushes everything back on the developmental scale for some guys. And for a guy like Julio, so prenaturally gifted, might not have affected him. But for Jared Kelnick, who had a high school and travel baseball experience where the quality of competition might not be, might not have been what then he was used to or jumping into here at the majors and at the pro level, he needed that development, it seems like. And with that loss, it, it certainly is taking more time than people wanted. But I don't think we can just step by that and say, yeah, well, 2020 happened, it happened for everyone, so it shouldn't be an excuse. Because it can be a big factor depending on where a player is in his timeline to develop. Last thing, Mike, before we get to our shortstop preview and talk essentially only about J.B. Crawford because he's the only shortstop on the roster. They mentioned Taylor Trammell alongside Jared Kelnick. Are you giving him any real shot of being the left-handed part of that platoon? Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. And I think it comes down to how much he truly did develop. Um, Jerry was very specific in saying left-handed batters when he was talking about left field. He didn't say Kelnick. I mean, he said A.J. Pollock and then uh, our young lefties. And at that media day, they also mentioned how much work Trammell has put in at driveline, where J.P. Crawford worked out and where a lot of guys go. And I think the Mariners really trust what they can get out of that facility there and the development and the improvement they see from their guys. So if Taylor Trammell comes in, and remember, he was a pretty highly touted prospect himself. If he did find something that just clicked, yeah, he can certainly be part of that. I mean, he's older than Kelnick. He's not this this young bat anymore that is going to still have so much untapped growth and potential. But if there's something that all of a sudden they were able to unlock, I think certainly at this point in the season where we're sitting here before spring trainings even began, before uh, you see how a season plays out, it's not a fallacy to say that Taylor Trammell could be that left-handed hitting piece of the left field uh, platoon. This has been a really fun conversation, Mike. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can hear all of Mike's work. Uh, you can hear him in the afternoons producing Wyman and Bob on Seattle Sports 710 on the 710 app, or if you still have a radio. For I know those things being phased out nowadays, but if you still have a radio, you can turn to your dial to 710. You can hear Mike on in the afternoons. You can find his work at seattlesports.com, and you also hear him on the Mariners Radio Network upcoming in this 2023 season. Mike, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, it, it was a very insightful conversation. You mean you guys don't still tune a radio in your cars? <laughs> oh, I do. Doing that? <laughs> I do. It's my job. No, I know they don't. Yeah. No, thanks, guys. Uh, a lot of fun. Had a great time. And it's fun that, you know, we're here. We're in February. So baseball starts soon. I mean, the first spring training games at the end of the month. And then all of a sudden, at the end of March, the season here, the season's here. So when, we, when I'm looking at this uh, dreary, wintry day here, it's, uh, it's a lot to look forward to. It's going to be an exciting time. Thank goodness for the roof. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. That was good to hear from Mike Lefko of Seattle Sports and seattlesports.com. Hear him on the radio on 710 AM. You still have the old-fashioned AM radio in your car. Turn that dial to 710 AM. You hear him on seattlesports.com. The afternoon producer for Wyman and Bob. You also hear him on the Mariners Radio Network. Let's hear our uh, shortstop preview now for the 2023 season for the Mariners, Lyle. A common theme here in 2023. I mentioned when we were previewing the other two positions, the depth at these positions is is not great. So we get to this point where we're previewing shortstops, and we have one name to talk about. One name, and that's it. It's J.P. Crawford at short for the Mariners in 2023. And I think it's a mixed bag of what we're expecting from J.P., in this upcoming season. It was just such an interesting tale for him last year because he lit the world on fire in the first month of the season. There were people through the first month of 2022 putting out those shortstop rankings that you'll see on Twitter with the pretty graphics and all that. And there were multiple outlets that said JP Crawford was the best shortstop in baseball through a month. He was playing that well. His OPS through the first month of the season last year was at 1023. And then the next highest in any month after that was 676. He really did not swing a great bat after the month of April, after such a promising start. Do the Mariners need him to put up a 1023 OPS all the time? No, of course not. But they do need him to at least be a replacement level hitter or slightly above that. He was a replacement level hitter by definition, if you look at it. Uh, this year, a, a 104 WRC plus 
243 average, 339 on base, 336 slugging. Lyle, believe it or not, he actually had a higher WRC plus in 2022 than he did in 2021 by one full point. We touched on it. Um, or actually, no, we didn't touch on it. So there's a couple good things that I like from J.P. Crawford. Let's start with his offensive profile. There are some likes, what I like from what J.P. Crawford's approach has become in the big league level. He walks at a very near elite amount, and he doesn't strike out at a, at a pretty elite uh, level. We look at it, he's got an 11%, 0.3% walk rate in 2022, and a 13.3% K rate. That's good. The rest of his offensive profile is not good. Not, I mean, and we're talking about exit velocity. We're talking about his swing mechanics. We're talking about just the results on the field. These prolonged slumps that he would go into throughout the course of the season, all negative across the board. He's been doing a lot of work at driveline this winter. We've seen some videos of it. Do we think this could help transform him at least a little bit? Yeah, I think so. They they love diving into mechanics. The a funny thing I said mechanics. I went to dive onto Twitter when I was doing my research on this yesterday of JP and what necessarily was wrong. I couldn't pinpoint one single thing, but Joe Doyle, who we had on a couple weeks ago now, and Jason Churchill, a prospects insider, would always just say his offensive ceiling is just so limited by how his swing mechanics are. And I'm wondering how much JP at this point of his career would tweak them. If you watch JP in the plate, Lyle, you you can see it. When he's got his bat above his head and he's ready to swing, his barrel is pointed like towards the pitcher and you know pointed up as well. It's got a long way to go to get into the strike zone. And it doesn't help to hit the ball harder. It doesn't. And I think a lot of that comes, a lot of that is mechanics. And I hope that's what he was aiming for at driveline this year. Maybe something a little bit shorter, something a little bit sweeter, something he said in his own words was to eliminate those prolonged slumps throughout the course of the season. You have to wonder if that long swing has something to do with why he struggles with fastballs. Listen to these stats. When you go on Baseball Savant and you define a player and their offensive profile by their run value per year, such stat does exist. It does so pitch by pitch. J.P. Crawford doesn't seem to have much of an issue with breaking balls. He hits changeups fairly well. He's had hills and valleys with that in his career where he's succeeded against changeups and points where he doesn't, which is pretty normal. But you look at four-seam fastballs that J.P. Crawford has seen in his career. His run value was negative five against four-seamers in 2019, negative one in 2020, negative seven in 2021, and negative four this past year. It's great that he hits off speed, but you've got to take advantage of fastballs. And it's not that he's not making contact against these pitches. As we mentioned, his contact rate, his chase rate, his whiff rate, all elite, all very elite when it comes to actually getting the bat to the baseball. Now, it's not the right part of the bat because he doesn't barrel the baseball at all. And a lot of that run value comes is putting a barrel on a fastball. What is the best way to produce runs? It is to barrel fastballs, A, because the exit velocity is cooked right into that pitch. The harder it's thrown, the harder it's coming out. So when you can get a barrel on a baseball like that, it makes your offensive profile that much more valuable. But JP doesn't do that, and I think that really hinders his offensive upside. And hopefully that's part of what he's been working on at driveline, that they're compacting that swing a little bit to get him quicker to the baseball because again, he does not have to hit 25 home runs. I don't think he's ever going to do that in his career personally, 
But if he could just turn some more singles into doubles and hit, say, 10 to 12 home runs a year, the Mariners would take that every day of the week. And the worst thing about the mechanics, as you said, it's not something you fix during the season. Once you're in season, you're not tinkering with a guy's mechanics because that makes things worse. And the worst thing that could happen is you turn JP from a guy with a 104 WRC plus into a guy like Abe Toro with a 62 WRC plus, And all of a sudden his, his, uh, his value bottoms out and you have a black hole at shortstop. JP managed to keep himself uh, above replacement level player at shortstop with his offensive profile. The thing, the question I have Lyle, when I'm looking at this, is J.P. Crawford is a valuable baseball player if he keeps his current offensive profile and plays the defense like he did last season. Last season, he was an above-average defender at shortstop and collected 3.3 wins above replacement despite the same offensive profile. But his defense slipped this year, so his wins above replacement came down by a full 1.3 wins above replacement to just two wins above replacement. And you wonder, since defense is not something that ages well, especially at the shortstop position, can that value go back up? You hope so. And there were reports throughout a lot of the year that J.P. Crawford did battle injuries. So you hope he can get fully healthy for 2023 and get back to the defense he used to play. Because you look at when he won the gold glove in 2020, he was one of the best defenders in baseball. Fast forward to 2022, he was one of the worst. And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to drop off that far for a guy that's as good of a defender as JP is. Statcast does a really, or excuse me, Statcast does a really great job of breaking down defense. Lyle, if you haven't, you get the chance, go on to Baseball Savant and really click around some of the defensive measurings they have and how they measure it. It's, it's really phenomenal. And something I managed to dig up here when looking at J.P. Crawford's defense. You look at outs above average. J.P. Crawford, I'm qualifying him as the worst. He was, by StatCast, the worst defensive shortstop in baseball this season. Okay, let me say that again. J.P. Crawford was the worst defensive shortstop in baseball. Outs above average tabbed him at minus 11 for J.P. in 545 attempts. There was one player worse than him at the position, but I'm going to give this person a break because I don't believe he's a shortstop. Luis Garcia of the Nationals had minus 13 outs above average in just 238 attempts. So if you're keeping track at home, in less than half of J.P.'s attempts, he he uh, he was two outs above average worse than J.P. Crawford. What tells that tells me is that he's not a shortstop at all and should not be playing the position. So I'm going to give him a break. And J.P. Crawford's won a gold glove at the position. As much as we trash on gold gloves, J.P. has won a gold glove, and he deservedly so won a gold glove. So we hold him to a higher standard. So that brings me back to my point, Lyle, of him being uh, the worst full-time defensive shortstop in baseball. Does does that, like, that that doesn't shock you from what we've watched? So I knew his defense took a dip this past year. I didn't realize until we dove into the numbers how bad it had gotten. Because it didn't, off the eye test, it didn't feel like he was the worst defender in baseball. But you look at the stat cast, you look at the numbers, he was in the second percentile in outs above average. He did not grade well at all as a shortstop defensively. 
there's some areas to look at too, Lyle, when we look at this. I went so far to look at his outs above average by direction, and it was some interesting numbers to say the least. J.P. Crawford was either minus two or minus three outs above average in every direction at shortstop. Every direction. He was minus going back. He was minus going to his right. He was minus going to his left, and he was minus going in. What that tells me is that's just bad defense. That's not you're bad at one direction. You're just bad at you have been subpar doing everything, and it accumulates to an overall bad defensive season. When we look at this, there uh, some guys are bad just going in one direction, which stuck out to me a lot, and why some guys are graded poorly, but it's a little bit unfair because maybe they're just not suited for that position because they are so poor in one direction. An example, Bo Bichette had negative seven outs above average this year, the shortstop for the Blue Jays. He was negative tens outs above average going to his right, a.k.a. into the hole at short. But he was either neutral or positive in all the three other directions, forward to his left and back. Ahmed Rosario was had negative 10 outs above average this season for the Cleveland Guardians, but he was negative 11 going to his left total. So positive everywhere else. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa was minus three going to, or sorry, minus three overall, was minus 10 going to his right, but was at least plus two or three in every other direction. So you can see these guys are affected by going one direction. They are bad going in one way that they are not comfortable doing or they do not have the physical capability to do. JP was bad in all four directions, and that is troubling to me. I think him and Perry Hill are going to have a lot to work on in the spring. One, we hope JP is healthy and fully ready to go in 2023. And we know Perry Hill is a phenomenal infield coach. I'm sure he knows that JP did not have his best defensive season. They know the Mariners are relying on JP heavily in 2023. So you can just hope when they get down to Arizona, they can really work through some things to get him back to at least close to what he used to be. Because if he can even be a slightly above league average defender that boosts his value so much. Here's what I wonder about JP with his defense. We said, this is not something that ages, especially at shortstop. It does not stack cash measured speed and arm strength for JP Crawford over the last three seasons. All three of those things has trended down his arm strength from when he won a gold glove in 2020 was in the 55th percentile. It has gone down to the 43rd percentile and now the 36th percentile. His speed has gone down from the 61st percentile last season to the 38th percentile this season. Two things that are pretty key at shortstop, being quick, being fast into the hole, and firing off a good throw to first. Those numbers say he's trending in the wrong direction. 2023 is going to be the real indicator. You can hope for fans' sake, for the team's sake, that last year was due to some injuries that he battled through and that he can get healthy this year and improve some of that. But if he continues to trend downward or plateau from where his 2022 was, that's not a good sign because the Mariners have not only invested a lot in JP with giving him an extension at the start of 2022, but they have passed on some blue chip shortstops, both in trade and free agency in each of the last two years because they believe in JP. And if it works out, They'll be proven right. 
But 2023 is a very, very critical year for J.P. Crawford to prove his worth. To piggyback off of Lyle's point, MLB Network has been doing their top 10 lists at every single position. If you want to see some of our beefs with those top 10 lists, we've highlighted a couple of them on our TikTok page, our YouTube page, our Instagram Reels page. If you want to go check that out, at Marine Layer Pod. They released their shortstop list. I don't have really have a problem with the shortstop list. It's a very good group. But seven of the top eight shortstops ranked by Major League uh, by MLB Network were available at some point in the last three seasons. At some point, they were available, whether it's free agency or trade. They were available, and the Mariners decided that none of them were going to be on this team, and J.P. Crawford was going to be their shortstop instead. Just something I want to point out. They gave him the extension. So again, this is a very, very critical year for J.P. Crawford, especially because if he gets injured and has to miss some time, There's not a lot behind him. Dylan Moore probably slides over to shortstop if that's the case and has to fill some time there. But you look at the Mariners system, there's nobody knocking on the door. The Mariners have some very, very good shortstops in their system, but none of them are anywhere close. Belneen Celestin, we've talked about him a bunch the last couple weeks. He is 17 years old. Cole Young, their first round pick from 2022, he's 19. Michael Arroyo, who's a highly touted prospect, is age 18. And Axel Sanchez, who's starting to work his way up through the pipeline, is 20 years old. None of those guys are anywhere close. It is J.P. Crawford's job. So the Mariners are banking on him to have a good year. A thing to note with Dylan Moore, too, I don't think Dylan Moore could handle being a full-time shortstop. He is a career-negative defender at shortstop. He's much better at second. He's much better in the corner outfield spots. I wouldn't be comfortable relying on Dylan Moore for an extended period of time at shortstop. After Dylan Moore, it's Mason McCoy or Sam Haggerty, if you think Sam Haggerty could handle short, but it's it's slim. It's slim pickings. If J.P. Crawford has to miss extended time this year, they would probably go out and trade for somebody. Kind of like how they went and got Carlos Santana this past year when Ty France had to miss some time. They would probably have to go out and trade for somebody like that because you're right. You know I'm a big Dylan Moore fan. I don't think shortstop is his best place to succeed. And I doubt, unless he really lights the world on fire in AAA, that Mason McCoy is going to get a real chance at the big league level to play every day. Could Evan White play shortstop? A lefty shortstop? Could you imagine? I've always said that I feel like a lefty low-key could play second base. I don't think a lefty could play shortstop, but maybe second base. What about if you think of the concept of like going to your left? I think that would be it would, that would be fine. I, the biggest problem would be going into the hole at short. That that would be yeah. the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to have to spin around, it'd be too tough. Something to think about cuz in conclusion, there's a lot riding on JP Crawford this year. He's going to be getting some more time off this year. Jerry Depoto and Scott Service said they're going to try and get him off his feet more keep him healthier, and hopefully boost his production as well. But if the Mariners are getting a net negative offensive performance out of JP while his defense continues to regress, there's going to be some questions over the course of the season whether JP is the guy at shortstop. It it is not set in stone in any sense of the matter. 
Long term, that's definitely the case. J.P. Crawford is certainly going to be a storyline entering 2023. He'll be an interesting guy to watch in spring training when the team gets there. Okay, TJ, let's wrap up the show with Speak Your Mind. Speak Your Mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. What are you thinking about this week? I have a big one that came out the day, I think it was the day uh, our show published last week on Wednesday. Netflix came out and said they are introducing um, anti-password sharing uh, concepts or rules. So now your device, you're going to set a home Wi-Fi network for whenever you log on to Netflix. And your device needs to connect to your home Wi-Fi network once a month. And if it doesn't, your uh, your account gets blocked. Uh, your login gets blocked from accessing Netflix. So you can know no longer watch Netflix if you are not in your home Wi-Fi address. So someone like me who still watches Netflix on his parents' Netflix account doesn't won't be able to watch any of his favorite Netflix shows because of this technology introduced by Netflix. I would like to announce I'm taking my talents to HBO Max. I think a lot of people are going to be off the Netflix train because of this. I mean, exactly. If you're somebody like you or me or a college kid who uses their parents' Netflix account and you're in a different state, but they won't let you watch Netflix, how is that attractive to the consumer? It's not. People are going to start using other outlets. The way I heard it put is... The only thing stopping people from just going on the internet and pirating these shows is password sharing, where Netflix still gets a, a, a still gets their revenue from their accounts, but their accounts are more shared. So now that they're going to be putting in all these stops, what's going to stop people from just going online like they do with the NFL, like they do with the NBA, like they do with baseball, and just work around it and and find these shows on some website that's not entirely legal, but you can still find the shows you want to watch. There's nothing stopping that now. Yeah, or people are just going to start watching Hulu or start watching HBO Max, like you said. I wonder if the ratings on some of these shows go down on Netflix, if the shows themselves try to opt out and take their programming to a different outlet. I'm just most bummed because I'm I'm a big fan of Netflix original series, and I won't be able to watch it if well, I'm locked out of Netflix because I'm not not at home. Eventually, I'll have my own Netflix account. I will make enough money to pay for my own Netflix account, but I don't have to worry about that right now. So I'm a little disappointed that this is what Netflix decided. Uh, I don't. I I honestly don't think this is going to make Netflix that much more money in, in the long run. So I, yeah, I don't know. Hot seat Netflix. Okay, I have two this week. I'll read. I'll say one because I think you have another as well. I cannot stand this Burger King commercial for another day. I like it's driving me insane. It's to the point where it's on TV all the time. I can't get it out of my head. I know they probably love it because this jingle of theirs has made their business absolutely skyrocket. And you're seeing people on social media saying, yeah, I finally caved and went and got Burger King. Not only have I not done that, but again, this commercial is driving me insane. I can't go a day without hearing the jingle. I, I like. I'm sorry if to to if I'm offending the people 
that are very pro Burger King commercial. I can't do it anymore. Can you wait for the Super Bowl? I mean, the Whopper commercial for the Super Bowl is going to be unbelievable. Do you think they're going to have a new one out? Yes, 100%. It'll have the jingle in it, but I think it'll look a little different. If there's a skit involved and it's entertaining, maybe. But just hearing the song over and over and over, like, it's making me lose some sanity here. I can't do it. You know what it's called? Good marketing. I think they've done a good job with that. I think they have. I mean, they've absolutely done a good job with it. Because what was the last time that a jingle in a commercial really resonated like this with everybody? The only ones that the only ones that popped into my head was remember the old Sleep Country jingle, like that one. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but I can't. There's some car ones too. Remember, yeah, like there's the one eight seven seven cars for kids one or. I remember when Jack in the Box did their uh, Jumbaco. You remember that? They kind of had a jingle for that. Mm, not really. Okay. So that one, not as much. But yeah, this Burger King one, it's been good marketing because it's absolutely off the charts. Whopper, 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 Junior Double Chicken. I think oh, I got that. I think yeah. I got most of that down. <laughs> now you're going to drive me crazy too. I don't even have to have my TV on anymore. Should we put it as the the outro music for this podcast? Will we get copyrighted? Probably. <laughs> yeah, we probably would. And we don't do marketing for free. Sorry, Burger King. Even though we've spent the last five minutes talking about the Burger King Whopper jingle. Uh, my <laughs> second speak your mind of this week. Uh, we're going to go right back to the NBA. This league, it, it, I, I cannot believe it, like how easy it is for them on Super Bowl week to manufacture drama and make themselves the spotlight during a regular season, which is as boring as it's ever been. Kyrie Irving decides just in the middle of the week after a random blowout to Boston, he decides to just, you know, you know what? I'm done playing here. I'm out. And earlier today he was traded to the Dallas Mavericks. I I have to salute the NBA. No other league like them can make a storyline out of absolutely nothing and dominate the headlines for a week. I didn't think of all places he was going to the Mavericks. That was out of nowhere when the news broke. It was mostly due to the return they got. That is true. We assumed it was going to be the Lakers, but the La- what are what are the Lakers going to offer? They don't they don't have anything to offer. They weren't going to offer what Dallas offered. So it, it is just funny that the whole Kyrie Irving thing. I don't know why any organization in the NBA would ever trade for Kyrie Irving with any serious aspiration to win anything. The dude drags down every franchise he goes to. Just look at his trail. Look at it. It it it, it tells the whole story, and I think it, it is. I think it's just absolutely insane that this happens. But Kyrie Irving is. He manages to make storylines like the NBA out of absolutely nothing. I guess if you're the Mavericks and you're trying to go all in for half a season with them, maybe it makes sense and just put up with them for a short amount of time. But the reports that are being dropped saying Kyrie Irving wants four years for $200 million next year, I don't know what team in their right mind could give him that after he consistently just causes turmoil at every stop of his career. So let's list off the guys you couldn't make it work with. Uh, LeBron, KD, James Harden, 
Am I missing anyone? Uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Uh, am I missing anybody? Kevin Love, I guess, when he was good. Kevin Love, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Man, I don't know. Kyrie Irving, credit. I mean, man, every every time you think Kyrie's quieted down and, and he's gotten the drama out of his life, he's like, nope. Back in front. He knows how to draw headlines. Okay, my final speak your mind for this week. A little bit of a different tone, but I thought I'd give him a nice shout out. So my brother's leaving this week because he is starting active service in the Air Force. By the time this podcast is out, he'll be out of Seattle. He'll be on the drive down to Del Rio, Texas, where he's going to be stationed at, it's called Laughlin Air Force Base. So Del Rio, Texas is pretty much down right by the border. It's three hours from Austin and it's like two and a half hours from San Antonio. It's really in the middle of nowhere. So I guess to put in perspective, the time you've spent in Corvallis, TJ, or the time I've spent in Dayton, it probably wasn't, if it, it like those two cities are probably like living in Chicago compared to this. But for my brother's sake, he's really excited about it because he's always loved flying planes. He's doing what he's passionate about. So I'm excited for him. And he's an avid listener of this podcast. He's a big Mariners fan. So I wanted to give him a nice shout out. I think he's going to be significantly busier than than I am here in Corvallis flying planes. Much much more important uh, much more important things to do than uh, spewing nonsense into the microphone. Yeah, same here. I was going to say he's he's going to be out saving the world or you know things of that sort. So yeah, I'm happy for him. He's been flying planes for it, a long time. He's been doing it since he was about 16 years old, and now he's going to go do it for a career. So that's pretty cool. Most of those Air Force bases too have uh, have pretty good setups for for people to live. It's you know it's like a it's a standard town for the most part. He'll have he'll have lots of open country to fly over. That's for sure. Exactly. Now, how many pictures he'll be able to take of scenic, you know, scenic land below that I can't promise. But you're right; he will definitely have room to fly. So, of course, best of luck to him. And you know, obviously, here we wish him all the best. Because aside from being my brother, more importantly, of course, he's a listener of the pod, so we always appreciate it. Well, with that, that just about wraps up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. As always, if you want to listen to our full-form podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and you can find the video form on YouTube. If you want to follow us on social media, you'll find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube Shorts at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this has been Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.